0: Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles, an extra book shambles that we're now doing on a weekly basis with science authors and also scientists, in addition to the usual weekly episode of Book Shambles. You can hear an extended version of this interview by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash book shambles. I know I always say forward slash, but that's because I'm 51 years old.
1: Here's the conversation. Yes, hello and welcome to Science Book Shambles, producer Trent here on this episode. Robin is joined by his regular Book Shambles co-host, Josie Long, and they are chatting to the author of the new book, Rebel Cell, which is all about the genetics and evolution of cancer, and that is Dr. Kat Arney. Kat also hosts the Genetics Unzipped podcast, which is where you'll find the audio versions of our Genetics Shambles show, Kat was a guest on that previously, and the most recent episode, uh, we strongly advise you do go and check out, it was a experts panel on COVID-19. We were joined by Professor Dan Davis, who's an immunologist, Nisreen Alwan, who is uh, an Associate Professor of Public Health, and Dr Emma Hodcroft, who is a researcher in microbiology. We covered lots of what the current uh, understanding is about COVID and where we're at with vaccines and whatnot. And also, we took a lot of time to kind of try and dispel some of the the kind of nonsense and conspiracy theories that are out there. Uh, So hopefully there's lots of stuff in there that might be useful or helpful for you to kind of little bite-sized bits that you can share out to friends who might be saying that COVID was made in a lab or masks do nothing or it's no worse than the flu or you know all that sort of rubbish that's out there so check that out cosmicshambles.com slash genetics shambles is where you can watch that and all the previous episodes as well And of course, as Robin said at the start, don't forget Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles is where you can go to support the show and also hear extended versions of these Science Book Shambles episodes. Hope you enjoy. Here is Robin and Josie and Kat.
0: Hello, this is Josie and Robbie's book Shambles, and now our next guest is uh, Kat Arney, author of this book, Rebel Cell, and uh, this is uh, a, book, well, it's a book about cancer, evolution, and the science of life, and... Uh, obviously it's uh, um, a fascinating and terrifying world and it is a world in terms of our understanding which has changed a great deal with the technology that uh, we have but I want to I want to start off if I can Cat, before we we go to the future the past because you start off with uh, um, Egyptian mummies and uh, various pieces of uh, conjecture that were beyond loose and one of a word that I, I can't even remember when I first came across this but I, I love this and this is paleo-oncology which is such an interesting discipline. Can you tell us a little bit about what paleo-oncology is?
2: Yeah well so the idea in the book was that I really wanted to put cancer in the context of the whole of life because we have this idea that cancer is like a modern disease and it's a human disease and it's just something for us and it's just something that's the impact of our modern lifestyles and then the more i started looking into it you realize that this is an incredibly ancient disease it goes back millions of years we can find fossils millions and millions of years old with evidence of cancer in, in fact the week that the book came out in the uk with beautiful timing uh, they found a an osteosarcoma a bone in a dinosaur fossil from 77 million years ago. Uh, So so that was nice. But yeah, trying to put this disease in the context of not just human history, but the history of life on Earth. And actually you sort of say, oh, going back to dinosaurs, uh, I actually go back all the way to the origins of multicellular life. So this is a big, (laughs) big stretch. Um, But the discipline of paleo-oncology is really about looking for cancer in ancient specimens. So that may be ancient animal fossils, uh, but the woman that I spoke to, Casey Kirkpatrick, who's in Canada, she's part of the paleo Research Organisation, which is this bunch of just absolutely kick-ass women who are really trying to get this whole discipline going because I think we've become very fixated on the modern issue of cancer, you know, cancer in, in patients and people right now, which is obviously important because there's no point trying to treat something that's been dead for 77 million years. You want to treat people going through cancer now but actually understanding how this disease has been around how it has manifested and the discovery that in you know everywhere we look in human remains all over the world going back thousands and thousands of years we find evidence of cancer and some people say well you, you don't find very many therefore it was incredibly rare and like you know effectively didn't didn't really exist it, it's a modern problem but we've never really looked for it and the more that people like Casey and her colleagues look, the more they find. You know, archaeologists don't rock up to a field with a CT scanner and put every single bone through a CT scanner. And there's many cancers where we don't see evidence of of tumours left in the bones. So, you know, they're trying to use different techniques, things like looking for evidence of proteins, looking for evidence in DNA and all that kind of thing. So I think, like, the more we look for evidence of ancient cancers, the more we look for evidence of ancient cancer, the more we're going to find. And it's just a fascinating, emerging, very ancient discipline. Uh, I found it a really interesting kind of uh, avenue to look down.
0: Well, you, you say, uh, just thinking of those things, of sometimes where we haven't been looking and we've just made presumptions. And you talk, for instance, about you know w- one of the myths being, I, I, th- I think the title of the book was Sharks Don't Get Cancer. And it turns out it's basically that we weren't really looking for it and and you know things like that, where as you said, there was a, an enormous industry with uh you know decimation of sharks with the belief that you know their cartilage etc may well be some kind of cancer cure, but that's 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 not true now, is it? From what we understand.
2: Yeah, and that was another thing that really struck me researching the book. So there's a, a book that I drew on very heavily. It's called The Evolution and Ecology of Cancer. And there's this section in it, a whole chapter, where it's like, you know, tiny, close-typed pages of every species they found that has examples of cancer. And there's everything in there, like sharks, fish, birds, bats, wallabies, wombats you know, everything across the tree of life with two really notable exceptions. So uh, comb jellyfish don't appear to get cancer. And no-one knows, like, what's, what's the deal with jellyfish. And then also sponges are <laughs> remarkably resistant to cancer. And again, no-one knows why. There's a guy but, in Arizona... It's like, not much of a life, is it? I know. Like, you know, it's the, it's the toss up, isn't it? It's like, you know, you don't get cancer, but you've got to be a sponge. So, um, and that's not an option open to most of us. Uh, but yeah, there's a guy in Arizona who's like blasting sponges with x-rays trying to give them cancer and you just can't. Um, but yeah, this this idea that, you know, it's this weird idea that people thought that sharks didn't get cancer and then from that shark cartilage was a, a treatment. And it's like, it's just been devastating the the misunderstandings about cancer and and like you say you know as scientists we tend to sort of that it's called the street lamp fallacy you know we focus where the light is and we look at what we can see with the techniques that we've got and it's only when there's advances in techniques or advances in thinking that we understand that there is more out there and i think actually one of the really nice examples of this that i talk a lot about in the book is that now we have the techniques to really look at tiny changes in DNA, not just in cancers, but in healthy tissue. And no one had done this in healthy tissue because, like, it's healthy. Why, why would you look at what's gone wrong in healthy tissue? That's just dumb. Like, But now it's become so cheap and so simple uh, for various values of cheap and simple. This is science after all. Uh, but scientists at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge could look at tiny, tiny, tiny little samples completely normal looking, healthy skin and esophagus and uh, the lining of the womb, and just find that it's riddled with mutations. And everyone was like, what? I'm like, yeah, well, you kind of expect that by middle age, you've picked up some, you know, you've seen some stuff, your cells have seen some stuff, but we'd never looked because it had never been possible, like technically, and I think also conceptually, like why would you look for mutations and damage in healthy tissue Like when we're talking about cancer? So, yeah, there's there's been some really interesting conceptual shifts, I think, in this field too.
3: I can really imagine people discovering the remains and fossils of dinosaurs and prehistoric life were not... It, it, it wasn't at the forefront of their minds to then be like, let's investigate the diseases on this. Like, it, you can totally see why that would have been left for a few decades.
2: Yeah, that, that one was really interesting. So the first study on dinosaurs and cancer was this guy uh, basically took a little scanner around to loads of museums in North America and was like, uh, can I pop your dinosaurs in it? And they were like, yeah, sure, I guess, like, whatever. And f- yeah, and he found particularly particularly like duck-billed dinosaurs. So it's like there, there may be something in that species. And obviously we can't really do a lot of DNA analysis on very, very long dead dinosaurs. But yeah, you've, you've just got to start looking for this stuff. And it's only when it becomes technically feasible and cheap enough, really, to do it, that you can start doing it.
0: And you, one of your chapters is, is, is called The Cost of Life. And it does look at the fact, it reminds me in some ways of uh, doing a tour last year, where, which, which ended where, where Brian Cox would say, you know, the, the very uh, laws that mandate there must be life in the universe are the laws that mandate there must be death. And at that point, he was talking from the perspective of physics, but from the perspective of biology, are we basically saying that there is un- an unfortunate necessity that if you're going to have complex life if you're going to have the cellular division that that requires that then mutation heredity natural selection it leads to ultimately the necessity of cancer
2: yeah this was a real revelation for me and i you know when i set out to write this book i thought i was going to write a nice book about like cancer genetics because i i like genetics and then realizing that that cancer is the price of life. It's it's basically inherently emerges from multicellularity. So if you're going to be a multicellular organism, your cells are interacting together. They're forming a society. Effectively, you know, they've got to do the right thing at the right time and in the right place. That's what keeps us healthy. And then cancer cells emerge as kind of cheats in this system. And we that's why it's so important to understand that we find cancer across all of life, like from tiny, simple organisms like these things called hydra that are basically little tubes of cells with tentacles on the end that live in the water, you can find naturally occurring cancers in those. That blew my mind. Um, You know, it's basically, if you're going to be multicellular, if you're going to have cells that can divide, if you're going to have tissues that can repair, if you're going to have cells that can move and migrate and make decisions, the flip side of that is that it can go wrong. And so cancer, yeah, it it is the price of multicellularity. And even if you lived a perfectly, perfectly, perfectly healthy life, there is still the chance that your cells can go wrong and cancer will develop because it's it's almost like hardwired in. And also as well, because we are we are multicellular organisms and we are subject to the laws of evolution by natural selection. Also, like you blame Charles Darwin for all of this, effectively. Uh, But, you know, our tissues evolve, cells evolve If you have, like in a tumour, you have cells that are genetically different and they can evolve and be selected for and change and grow according to the laws of evolution. So, you know, when people go, we must declare war on cancer, it's like, well, you're going to have to declare war on multicellularity and war on evolution as well. And like, good luck with that.
0: We should say, by the way, for the purposes of balance, that you can also blame Alfred Russell Wallace because uh, a lot of people <laughs> feel that he doesn't get enough you know of uh, so so alfred russell wallace as well the um
2: can we blame dawkins just i'm not like...
0: sure well as for the gene you know there was a misunderstanding the selfish gene has it gone to the genes I, there's a lot of things about the ego of a gene there um oh, still one of the most misunderstood uh, book titles of in the history of uh, popular science isn't it um <laughs> I, I, was, I also want to this is something I was reading Robert Plowman's uh, book about uh, genetics, and something that surprised me because you talk a little bit about some cancers that are uh, more easily treatable, some which are very devastating. Something that I'd not understand, he talks about the heritability of breast cancer, and he says it's actually 10%. Now, this really surprised me about heritability of, of, of certain cancers, especially breast cancer, because I had read so much which suggested that, you know, with, within a family, etc., it, it, you know, the likelihood was was certainly heritability was a lot more than 10%. Yeah,
2: so there's, there's a couple of very complex concepts to unpack there, uh, the first being heritability. So heritability is basically when you look at a whole population and a particular trait, it's like how much can we explain the variation within that whole population by differences in genes. So it's not about like within each family, like if you inherit this gene, what's the chance that you'll get this cancer? It's more like when we look across a whole population, how much can we say about the difference in risk between people is due to differences in their genes versus other things that are not genes? And you can sort of bucket everything in the environment into that, you know, environment, lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. So for any one family, you know, we know that there are inherited gene variations that do increase the risk of certain cancers pretty significantly. So like the the BRCA genes, certain versions of those can increase your risk to, you know, you have an 80% chance of having breast cancer, ovarian cancer, if you have one of those particular genetic variations that you've got from one of your parents. So within a family, we can understand those patterns when we look across the whole population and say all right how much of, of all the differences in risk across the whole population is down to differences in genes versus differences in the environment that figure becomes a lot smaller because you've got everyone in there you know and everyone's genetic variations and not just individual families that have these specific uh, genetic changes so that's a thing where you sort of again have this idea that oh it's just in your genes and cancer's just a hereditary thing or on right on the other end of the spectrum like oh, it's just bad luck you know it's it's somewhere in between genes don't play as big a role as we would thought but on uh, an actual kind of down at the cellular level yeah of course cancer is a, a disease where cells have problems in their dna in their genetic instructions they've picked up mutations so that's kind of on the the new mutations that they pick up Whereas, when you're looking at heritability, that's about inherited genetic changes that have come down the generations from your parents, from your grandparents, rather than new changes that have been picked up by your cells as you go through life. Does that kind of make yeah, sense? Yeah. There are a lot of complex concepts mm. to wrestle with there, and you've made me explain heritability. Which, and it uh, is
0: early in the morning. I for hope those, it's a service. For whatever time you're listening to this now, everyone, <laughs> this was very early in the morning to deal with uh, heritability. I've had one
2: coffee. <laughs> And i've had to explain heritability.
0: um i was gonna also i i wondered uh you you talk in in the in, in the book about one of the chapters uh crispy and jago who I know from Winchester skeptics uh for some ago and at the beginning of that chapter something which some people who maybe uh um you know have perhaps have the good fortune so far to 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 um not have to uh, be be too close to dealing with uh you know the the issue of cancer you talk about his oncologist basically uh crispy and jago is being kept alive by informed guesswork now people don't you know so i I think a lot of people go informed. hang on guesswork what's going on so can you give us a little explanation of uh, some of the ways now as of course there are advances and there are you know many and there are unexpected turns there will be so many unexpected turns so by informed guesswork what do you kind of mean by that
2: yeah so one thing that I want to get really clear is that when I was writing this book I was really aware that there'll be people reading it who are going through cancer treatment people very close to them going through cancer treatment and You know, there's at no point do I want to say, like, oh, no treatment is working, nothing is worth it, blah, 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 all that kind of thing. So... In some cases, you know, we are really good at treating many types of cancer. So you know, the, the the famous figure that I pull out a lot in the book, you know, the glass is half full. About half of all people diagnosed with cancer today will survive for at least 10 years. And that, that figure has doubled even in my own lifetime. So that's good. And there's lots of cancers, you know, we know how to treat. There's a, a known pathway. We have clinical trials that show us how best to treat someone with this particular stage and this particular type of cancer and increasingly starting to use more sophisticated molecular tests and treatments to, to you know, take people along known journeys. So, for example, you know someone close to me is going through treatment for early-stage prostate cancer and that's just a very known pathway. You know, At this stage, we know what to do. You have hormone therapy for a bit, you have radiotherapy for a bit and we've got a really good idea of what your outcome is likely to be. With Crispian he has uh, stage four so it's very advanced metastatic kidney cancer and you know at that point it's like you're into clinical trials you're into sort of we don't have the data on people with this type of cancer to know how best to treat them so by informed guesswork it is about it's looking at the research it's saying okay you know We'll try this, see if this treatment's going to work. If not, try a different one. And um, you know, particularly for advanced cancers, I I refer to this as a kind of a whack-a-mole approach. Like the cancer will evolve resistance, it will come back at some point, and then you hope that you're onto the next drug. There's something else coming through clinical trials. There's something else that's that's come on the market. But these things aren't cures. And talking to Crispian, he's very, he's hes just an incredible person to talk to about this because the way that he has sort of, I guess, made peace with the journey that he's on. And he's like, well, you know, he's hes four years into this journey and it's just incredible. Um, but, you know, at some point, the treatment that he's on will stop working because the cells within his body will have evolved resistance to that treatment, the cancer cells. And then, you know, maybe there's another drug to try. Maybe there's another option you kind of just keep going until you're you're out of options so his oncologists are doing an amazing job there but where I kind of get to at the end of the book is like these are not cures and we've been sold this idea of the cure for cancer and it's going to be a drug a treatment something in a bottle or, or something in a in a needle that you can just take and actually the the kind of approaches. Where I get to at the end of the book that are really exciting are these more evolutionarily informed treatments so trying to understand how the cells in the body are evolving how they're developing resistance to treatment how can we balance those populations even with the drugs that we have already so you know not necessarily needing new drugs um and then how can we kind of devise sort of extinction strategies if you want to think about this in like an, an evolutionary and an ecological kind of way rather than that, like, just, you know, the cure, the cure is going to be this one pill. It's like, this is an evolving system within the complex system of the body. And we need to be much more clever about the strategies that we use to try and and, and get rid of these cells and accept that evolution is going to happen. So how do we work with it, understand it, and kind of take it and, and twist it to our own advantage Uh, and I think some of those strategies are are really exciting
0: what I think you're Josie the the bit that will hook you in is there is also the uh the ugly face of uh, Victorian capitalism does appear uh in in the book which is really fascinating I mean horribly uh I say fascinating in the most horrible way you talk about child chimney sweeps um the I mean it's, it's yeah it's it's pretty grotesque isn't it really what what happened there
2: Yeah, this was a, uh, this is one of the, I think it is the first example of a public health intervention in cancer. And this was in the 18th century. So there was a man called Percival Potts. He was a a surgeon, and he was very interested in the genitals of chimney sweeps, but purely, I must say, purely in a professional way. Uh, Because at the time, so chimney sweeps were young boys, and they were being sent up the chimneys of uh, English chimneys in in London and, and other cities, uh, pretty much completely naked, because obviously, you know, work and employment laws didn't really exist in the 18th century. So these poor children were being uh, sent up, they weren't really given any facilities to wash, they were being run by, you know, gangmasters and things like that. And there was just lots and lots of cases of, they called them soot warts, but these were basically genital tumours uh, on the, the, the testicles of these um, poor children. And Percival Potts was like, I think it's the soot that's causing this. It's It's causing some irritation in the skin and causing these cancers. And so he was campaigning for washing, for protective clothing. In Germany, the sweeps were wearing these like really close-fitting kind of pyjama-type things. Um, You can find some nice pictures of them. So they were wearing protective clothing, uh, they were being made to wash, and and he showed that if you do these public health interventions for the chimney sweeps, the incidence of these tumours goes down and down and down. And so it was the first example of this real connection between an environmental exposure and these cancers. But unfortunately, yeah, in uh in britain um the people who wanted their chimneys swept and the people who ran the chimney sweeps were like nah too expensive nah don't want to do it and it took it took years i think it took the best part of a century to bring in these kind of protections for the sweeps and it's like yeah that's that's cancer uh public health interventions the whole way it's like you know what's causing it you know what could prevent it but trying to get the policy change (laughs) Yeah. to make this stuff happen it's it like it really oh, come on clear how miraculous
3: it is that we have an nhs at all how like the circumstances that was so singular and lucky to to get that through the yeah. uh, despicable rot that is england to the absolute yeah. unforgivable despicable rot uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> see that's what i was hoping for you josie i thought if i bring up the child chimney sweeps i believe that will activate something there yeah. and um,
3: it's propaganda i mean it I... Is, it's
0: a it's a fascinating thing though isn't it that bit where also you go now of course uh the, you know in germany they were much kinder to their child chimney sweeps <laughs> and they gave them little pajamas and still made them go up the chimney though yes. no one I said mean... Do you know what one of the ways we could stop them getting uh, tumors on their testicles is maybe buy a brush yeah. maybe redesign the chimneys maybe find a way of clean. you know designing chimneys where you don't have to send children in them to clean them no pajamas will do
2: yeah i mean you know it's, it's slowly slowly uh, with public health interventions but it is it is really can i to say i moved
3: rooms to get away from the vacuuming sound and the vacuuming sound is even louder in this room
2: <laughs> it's following it's in your head the
0: that <laughs> in? just so for, for those listeners who don't know basically what's happened is uh, unfortunately a rival book podcast has moved into the flat above josie and uh, bought a particularly probably as well just to annoy you even more it's a dyson vacuum cleaner that they're using so it also has a brexit based agenda as it sucks up bits of dust and flotsam and jetsam
2: it's actually being pushed by a child chimney sweep as well
0: yeah <laughs> They're actually using it to vacuum the soot off their chimney sweep.
3: Oh, that's both inefficient and inhumane.
0: It's very that's hard sometimes tough, to work out which tough. is the worst in that order. Oh
3: my word. Right, I've gone back in this room now. Um, um the- sorry, Josie. No, I, I, no, no, no. After... Well, well, I just wondered where, obviously, as you
0: said, you, you know, you, you have, have worked and, and kind of have an understanding of cancer. I, I I still wondered where how much changed in the writing of this book, you know, perhaps where your hope resided for combating cancer before you started researching the book and whether that has now changed when you finished writing the book.
2: I think that there's been two kind of changes in my view during this so originally when I set out to write the book my first book was called Herding Hemingway's Cats which was all about like genetics and how our genes work and sort of the the black box between like the DNA code and and how we come out and I thought when I was going to write this book that it was going to be a lot about the genetics and like how do our genes do this and that and all that kind of thing in, in cancer and then realizing that it's much more sophisticated it's really about like tissue biology and this idea of like the the society of cells and evolution and ecology and all these kind of things and that actually our our fixation on genetics in cancer has really led us down some quite I think sort of quite narrow paths and this idea that like the way we're going to beat cancer is by ever more precision targeted treatments that target the faulty molecules in cancer cells and it's like well that's not like they're useful but they are not the cures and they're not bringing the survival gains that that we think they ought to or certainly that the headlines tell us that we should be expecting and I think in one case I saw a paper where it's like nine days improvement in survival from one of these incredibly expensive drugs and you're like okay that is not going to get us to for whatever value of cure you think also, you're looking for great nine days I mean, yeah what would you do Uh, go away go on holiday I don't know Um, so these are not like the cures that the headlines make us think that that they are so that was really uh, challenging for me it's like all this stuff all this focus on finding the genes and then finding the drugs it has its place but it's it's really led us into a very narrow way of thinking so that that was kind of interesting. And then realising that some of the ideas about evolution and understanding tissues and the society of cells and all that kind of thing are very old. People have been banging this drum for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years ago. Uh, in 1977, a researcher called Peter Noel published a paper, a very short paper, saying, like, cancer probably evolves in the body in response to treatment. This might be a problem. That's basically the paper. It's like three paragraphs or something. Um, and everyone pretty much ignored it. And, you know, and it's just not being taken that seriously because it's a really hard problem. And it's really hard to understand tissues and evolving systems because they are systems that work over time, you know, and and in three dimensions. So, you know, space, I, I sort of make the joke like space is not the final frontier in cancer research. It's time. We need to understand how things are changing over time within someone's body. And that's difficult. It's much easier just to take a sample of cells, mash it up, look for all the mutations and say, right, this is how we treat you. Oh, that stopped working. Well, I don't know. Um, So, yeah, that was that was kind of a a, a bit of a challenge. And I think it's a real challenge in the field.
0: Well, Kat, thank you very much. Rebel Cell uh, is it's out now. It is out now, isn't it? Yes.
2: Yeah, in the UK, Rebel Cell, Cancer Evolution and the Science of Life is out now. I've got a little website that I built, uh, rebelcellbook.com, that's got all the links to buy it and all that kind of stuff. Um, If you like science and genetics, I've got a podcast called Genetics Unzipped. So we've got some little audio extracts on there. And and actually one of the recent episodes of the genetics shambles that I did with you, Robin, and um, with uh, Mariam uh, and uh, uh, Samra. Uh, So that was a really interesting conversation as well. So, yeah.
0: And you'll find out that yet again, we've avoided talking about naked mole rats, but people can find out about them in the book. Naked (laughs) mole rats, they always hang over these conversations, but they don't necessarily intervene.
2: They just watch over us. Uh, Can I quickly ask before we finish, so,
3: you know, uh, does does your research put you at odds with uh, the way that, like, uh, the way that research is generally going or or are there other people who understand and appreciate what you've written about? Do you feel positive that people are at least taking on the challenge when it comes to cancer research? And
2: Yeah, I think this is an emerging field and it's been really nice to find this sort of growing community of researchers and oncologists who are thinking more in this sort of evolutionary and ecological way about cancer I mean there's certainly there's a section in the book um where I really do confront like there's a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort going into developing very targeted drugs that do have very minimal benefits on survival and I really do have to question that um you know without sounding like sort of a tinfoil hat wearing pharma conspiracist because I'm absolutely not like the pharmaceutical industry is the way that we turn science into medicine like they need the money, they need the investment, they need the huge trials and the regulatory oomph to do that. But like, it's all just been focusing in such a narrow band of ideas, of targets, uh, and not thinking about these more evolutionary strategies. So it's been really nice to see this kind of field, even in the past few years, growing. There's a new centre at the Institute of Cancer Research down in Sutton for evolution and cancer. There's a big centre in Arizona. It's starting to become an area where... People are investing more money, investing more time, investing more more thought, you know it's not quite the weird weirdy beardy area um, that it that it was even a few years ago. So I think it's I think it's certainly exciting, and that's really why I wanted to to write this book and it's difficult bringing a book out in a global pandemic. Uh, please buy my book. Um, but I think it's time that the public were exposed to this new way of thinking about cancer because I think it's only going to grow and become more prominent in the years ahead.
3: That's exciting.
2: really is, yeah.
3: Kat Arnie, thank you
1: very much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Book Shambles podcast if you're not already. You probably are if you're listening to this, but tell other people to do it as well and uh rate and review five stars on apple Podcasts as well that really helps us out patreon.com slash book shambles is where you can go to financially support the show and also you'll get extended editions of episodes and all sorts of other stuff as well back next week with another science book shambles back on thursday with your regular edition of book shambles as well have a great week bye Or have a great couple of days if you listen to both episodes this week
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.